Tonight we are in Hebrews chapter 11 and we are going to finish up chapter 11 tonight. We will be talking, um, uh, kind of concluding these champions of the faith that we've been looking at and then we'll be able to kind of move on through here into chapter 12 next week. But um, this is very applicable for our world today and I was contemplating taking communion at the end of this because I think it might mean even more but um, we're going to look at the book of Maccabees significantly tonight as well and I've maybe mentioned some of this before but it is I think a very important thing to look at in context of what Hebrews 11 is talking about now again Maccabees I'm not saying it's on the level of Scripture. I'm just saying it is worthy of reading. I think it is a good history book. Um, it was, I believe, in the original 1611 King James Version. Um, but I personally do not put it on the level of an inspiration of Scripture. But I think it is good history. And I do think that we see the um, uh, importance of what this great faith chapter is talking about as we examine some of that history. So Hebrews 11 verse 33 says this, Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. So, out of weakness they were made strong. Um, it is just crazy how we run from anything that's uncomfortable. I get it, I do too. I mean, I always have. Uh, today we watched Daniel Joseph's message on death. And one of the things, he had a quote from Spurgeon, and I'll, I'm going to do the best I can to kind of recall it. My wife might be able to help me. But basically, uh, actually, it wasn't Spurgeon's. He had quotes of Spurgeon, but it was Steve Jobs. I cannot believe I'm going to even say anything he's quoted here in Bible study. But he said that everybody... Um, <clears throat> runs from death. Even those who believe they're going to heaven do everything they can to keep from going there. And I thought, how sad, but true. You know, we should not shrink back from death. Now, he talks about this. I mean, should we want to die? Not necessarily. No, that's not, not what he's saying at all. What he's, uh, there's a time, the context is everything. There are some who, when persecution comes, when it comes time that, you know, you're being forced to go against God's word, then yes, we can welcome it. And then it's like, yeah, my time is up. Yes. And that, that attitude we should have. And so it's just very appropriate for this. Um, others were tortured. Notice others. Not everybody is going to be tortured. But just like we had mentioned last week, there are those who, even among that happening, God steps in and gives them a peace and a comfort. Stephen, I don't even think he felt the stone. 
I mentioned that guy from Russia last week who was, you know, in prison for 30 years, you know, or I don't remember how many years, 10 years, something, 30 feet underground, but the walls became like diamonds and they found so much hope and peace and joy and something they would have never found without it. And anyway, the, the Lord's strength for it to go forth, I think oftentimes this is what has to happen is we have to be broken. And anybody who's going through trials will tell you that. That it's in those times of brokenness that the Lord is strongest in our life. We need Him. We get rid of all self, self-reliance, uh, independence. It's gone, and we have no place to look but to our Father. When our bank account is drained, there's no money in it. Our provisions are emptied. We don't know where our next you know, food is going to come from, which I suspect probably none of us have ever been truly in that spot. But that's the mentality we really need. Um, verse 35 here, though, when it talks about torturing, it kind of switches from those who were victorious to this other group. This, all of these that out of weakness, they, they survived it all. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they were thrown in the fire, but we get a good victory out of that. They're brought out of it. They don't feel the fire. They're, they're spared. Their life is spared. But now he moves here in verse 35 to another group of people who God was no less there, but there was a different outcome in this world. And it's just kind of definitely a noticeable difference here. Both of these people lived by faith. Those that went through the fire and survived and those that did not survive. One woman receives her son back and yet, you know, John the Baptist is beheaded. So I think about the name it, claim it movement that's very rampant today in our society. That because we're Christians, that we aren't going to suffer and that we're going to be blessed beyond belief. This just flies in the face of that. You see, I, I really believe that when we pray these things, Lord, I've got cancer. I'm not one of those guys who says, cancer be gone in the name of Jesus and I'm going to believe it and therefore it's going to be. Because I don't believe that. I believe that sometimes it is God's will to allow me to go through that for a good reason. Whether it be for me or for those around me. Because he knows best and I would rather put myself in his hands and say, Lord, all I know is this, whether I live or or die, it is Christ. It is to gain Christ. And I trust that he will be with me as I suffer through that cancer, through that death of a loved one, through whatever the case might be. And so that's just not my theology because I don't see it being scriptural. I can find verses that have a name it, claim it, feel, but I can have all these other verses that say, <clears throat> no way. And so what do you do with that? Well, you give it to God's will and you say, if it be your will, Lord, heal me. And yeah, and we have to realize that, yeah, am I protected by God from curses? Yes. But am I protected 
from all harm in this world? No. No, and I think that that is different. There's a spiritual battle, but we also have to realize this, that our actions do allow Satan to attack at times too. We are only protected when we are under that protection of God. If I go out and live in disobedience, I am now stepping out from underneath the umbrella of God's protection to some extent. Not to say that he can't still step in, but there's a number of different factors that cause us from being protected. But even when I'm on the umbrella of God, I am walking in obedience. I am just on the high of, of Christianity at the moment. Whatever the case might be, that doesn't mean that God will not allow trials and tribulations in our life. And it's like Romans says, you know, these trials, these tribulations, they produce perseverance, perseverance, character, and character, hope, but hope does not disappoint us. And so I think that sometimes we're allowed to suffer because we need it. You know, the, the Chinese church, the true church over there has prayed for years that Americans would experience persecution. They send missionaries to the United States because they know we need it. It's the best thing for us. It's just like we discipline our kids. It's not fun. I don't want to have to spank my kids when they were younger, but yet I did because it was best for them. Discipline is good. And remember, is it James where, uh, where he says that if you aren't disciplined, you're really not loved by God. And so we want to pray away all discipline, pray away all troubles, and that's not the goal of Christianity. So here is a clear verse saying, listen, even Zechariah was not welcomed by the people. He was stoned. We're going to see Isaiah, uh, it seems, was quartered, drawn and quartered. Um, so there's all kinds of, of suffering that goes on in this world, but again, it will seem like nothing when you hit the resurrection. And so we, we shouldn't be running from all of this. Pray, Lord, if it be your will. And I pray all the time, Lord, let me and my children learn from the good things that go on in this world. Let me not need to be disciplined to have my eyes opened. All these blessings that we have in America, we have turned into curses because we have made them to be, we deserve them, we uh, should have more of them, and we are so independent, we don't need God. I think I've told you before when I was in India speaking there, we never got in the car without praying because we needed safety to get across town or whatever. I get in the car all the time and drive into Hastings and think, I got this. And we should never be that independent. We should always just rely knowing we need him for everything. So, like I said, I am going to take you to Maccabees. Um, even Martin Luther, by the way, said of the book of Maccabees, he said that it had a weight with the faithful. Now, he didn't put it on the level of Scripture either, but he saw and recognized the importance of it as a book. That it is a spiritual book with value to it. He says this in 2 Maccabees chapter 6, verse 1. Um, Antiochus here 
is basically the king in this area. Remember when Alexander the Great came in, he dies and his kingdom is split up into four. And the, the portion that is over Judea and Jerusalem is now ruled by a guy named Antiochus IV, who later becomes known as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, he named himself that. That means God manifest. So he was setting himself up as a god. And so we see all this perfect template of what the Antichrist is to look like. And I think that there's value in that because history does repeat itself. As it was, so shall it be. Uh, Jamie Walden was talking about that. That is the proper interpretation of Scripture is a cyclical thing. There is nothing new under the sun, Ecclesiastes. And so when, we, when the Jews look at Scripture, they see these as patterns to look for for future events. And I think that that's right. And the church really hasn't looked at Scripture that way, that way very much. But I do. And when we see Antiochus, that's what you need to think. This is, this is kind of a picture of Revelation, a picture of the Antichrist. So anyway, that's some background here. It says, Not long after this, the king, Antiochus, sent an old man of Athens to compel the Jews to depart from the laws of their fathers not to live after the laws of God and to pollute also the temple in Jerusalem and to call it the temple of Jupiter, Olympias, and that in Gerizim of Jupiter, the defender of strangers, as they did desire, that dwelt in that place. So basically, in a nutshell, he wants to rid the, the Jewish people of their law, not to live after the laws of God. So... One way he did this was he called the temple of God after the temple of his own God. Okay, it basically named it after demons, Jupiter, Zeus, those kind of things. And so when it talks about this temple of Gerizim, at that in Gerizim, that's the, the Samaritans. Remember the Samaritan woman? You, we worship you know, in Gerizim, but you guys worship in Jerusalem. Which one's right? <clears throat> and so that was the, basically the Samaritan temple. So he's coming in and he's saying, these things aren't important. You don't have to do this. Notice he's not getting rid of <clears throat> spirituality or religion. <clears throat> Excuse me. He's trying to replace true religion with a false one or contaminate the true one with a false one. He goes on, the coming in, of this mischief was sore and grievous to the people. So there were some that were bothered by it. For the temple was filled with riot and reveling by the Gentiles who dallied with harlots and had to do with women within their circuit of the holy places and besides that brought in things that were not lawful. In other words, their church was being defiled. Revelry, all of that kind of thing. When I was reading this, I couldn't help but think of some things that I have seen both on YouTube as well as uh, in person in some cases of what is so disorderly and so ungodly and yet it's under the guise of so-called Christianity that comes into the churches. Revelry and, and walking pigs down the aisle so that the pastor can kiss it because of a fundraiser or, you know, 
things like that unholiness within what is to be holy. And that's just kind of a picture that I see. But again, this is the, the goal of the devil. The goal of the Antichrist is going to be to remove the holiness. When I was a kid, I remember we would never go up to the altar. If I would ever go up to you know, the stairs on the altar, my parents would, hey, get, get down from there. Because not that it was like some sin, but there was a respect of church, a respect of his house. That's why we would dress up when we would go to church because it was to give reverence. Not that it was some sin if you didn't, but we want to give God our best. We want to be reverent. Now, I know doctrinally we can say, well, you know, we are the temple and it's not the church. Yeah, I, I understand that, but that doesn't mean that we shouldn't still give respect to those things. So, just how Satan has whittled away at that foundation of reverence in the church. It goes on, The altar also was filled with profane things which the law forbids. Neither was it lawful for a man to keep Sabbath days or ancient fasts or to profess himself at all to be a Jew. And in the day of the king's birth, every month they were brought by bitter constraint to eat of the sacrifices. And when the fast of Bacchus was kept, the Jews were compelled to go in procession to Bacchus carrying ivy. Bacchus is the god of wine. So, in essence, he's declaring war on everything godly, everything holy. Remember what Daniel said. He said that truth would be cast to the ground. That is what these people in the days of the Maccabees were seeing. Truth was being cast to the ground. A year ago, I don't think I could see that as clearly as I can today, even for our society today. And yet remember that this is a pattern of what the Antichrist does. He wants to make that which is holy unholy. He wants to cast truth to the ground. He does not want you to keep the Sabbath. He does not want you to keep the feasts because he knows that these are a shadow of what? Christ. Not just his first coming, but his second coming as well. He knows that these things are a picture of truth in Scripture. And therefore, he wants to hide it and destroy it. Well... In so doing, what he was accomplishing historically was gaining his governmental power. He was gaining strength because he was kind of mixing and melding and getting the support of everybody. Constantine, he did the same thing. We see this throughout history. Yes, there is a spiritual aspect of this, but there's also a physical aspect in gaining power and control. That was the goal. That's why Alexander the Great did what he did. When they went in, a lot of other countries would just take over. Now you do what we do. But what they did is they allowed people to do their normal thing, but with a few adjustments to it that made it more, you know, Greek, made it more unholy. Little compromises. But the goal was so that they could have power. Sounds familiar. 
I want to take you to Isaiah 59, verse 14, because he kind of talks about this truth. He says, justice is turned back and righteousness stands afar off. For truth is fallen in the street and equity cannot enter. So truth fails and he who departs from evil makes himself a prey. History repeats itself. Isaiah, this is, Antiochus is long after Isaiah. Isaiah was seeing that happening. Antiochus brings it in. And the Maccabeans were seeing this happening. And I propose we're seeing it happening today as well. That truth is fallen in the street and those who depart from evil, those who are going to stand for scriptural truth, I'm not talking about our freedoms here. I'm talking about scriptural truth. Those who stand for that will himself become prey. That's just how it works. The Psalms will also confirm this. In Psalm 105 verse 25, it says, He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. Remember, in Egypt, God made the Egyptians hate the Israelites. What did they do that was so bad? Nothing. They were scared of them. But when you see this happening, throughout history, throughout every one of these cycles, I can tell you this, when you see that happening, deliverance is just around the corner. That's what we saw in Egypt, isn't it? They hated, the people were oppressed, they were the enemy, they were the prey, but deliverance was just around the corner. The Maccabeans, this is what's going on, but deliverance was just around the corner. It's just like in labor. You go through those birth pains and you know that deliverance, once, that, once it gets intense and once it's, it's reached, you know that there is deliverance coming. It's going to get better. And the way to do that, what a woman should do, I don't know what a woman always does, but she needs to focus on the end, on the outcome of it, not the present pain that they're going through, right? Am I right, women? Okay, I, I, I can't say, because I too was watching Saved by the Bell, I think, when... <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the point being, though, is... In the spiritual or in our physical world, the same thing. If when, in, when bad things happen in this world, whatever they are, we don't focus on what we're going through now. We have to have our eyes fixed on the outcome, the deliverance, the promise. That's what our hope lies in. So a lot of you here have gone through that pain. And if I would tell you, you know what? You're going to have to, you know, basically push a watermelon out of a, you know, little hole the size of a golf ball. I don't know. You would say, no way am I ever doing that. But the point is, is if I told you you're going to do that and there's no, there's no blessing on the other side of it, there is no way you would do it. But you guys not only have done it once, but some of you multiple times, Right? Why? Because it's worth it. The joy that it brings is worth it. 
we have to have that same focus. We can't focus on the pain. And this is what I see so many people in the church doing today. We're scared to death of the pain that could be in our future. Don't focus on the pain. Focus on the birth. Focus on the deliverance. Because that's where our hope lies. It goes here in chapter 6, continuing in verse 18 of Maccabees. It says, Eliezer, one of the principal scribes, an aged man and a well-favored countenance, was constrained to open his mouth and to eat swine's flesh. But he, choosing rather to die gloriously than to live stained with such an abomination, spit it forth and came of his own accord to the torment. As it behooved them to come, that are resolute to stand out against such things as are not lawful for love of life to be tasted. In other words, what Antiochus was trying to do is there were these people who stood for truth that became prey, that became the enemies, and he wanted to force them to join the rest of them. So the first thing he did is he would try to get them to eat pork. And this one elderly man... He, he would he'd keep his mouth shut. He wasn't going to do it. They forced it in his mouth. He spit it out. And he was willing to do that and be tortured just because he was going to honor God and his word. Um, by the way, this meat had also been offered to idols as well that was being tried to shoved in his mouth. I'm going to be skipping some things here. But... I think, personally, as you guys know, food laws must be important if Satan keeps going after them. And if this is the very first law given in the, in the whole of Scripture was a food law. Did you know that? In the Garden of Eden, do not eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. The very first law was even a food law. But... I'm not going to talk about that tonight as much. Verse 21 says, But they that had the charge of that wicked feast, for the old acquaintance they had with that man, or with the man, taking him aside, besought him to bring flesh of his own provision, such as was lawful for him to use, and make it as if he did eat of the flesh taken from the sacrifice commanded by the king, that in so doing he might be delivered from death, and for the old friendship with them find favor. In other words, these that had compromised but were friends of his, were saying, listen, just here, we'll bring you some beef. We'll bring you some clean food. Eat it. We'll pretend it's pork. Then you can basically give this attitude of deception for the sake of sparing your life. Do this because we love you. We care for you. So fake it, in essence. Well, we're going to see how he responds. He began to consider discreetly, and as became his age and the excellency of his ancient years and the honor of his gray head, whereon was come, and his most honest education from a child, or rather the holy law made and given by God, therefore he answered accordingly and willed them straightways to send him to the grave. In other words, he started to think, what would God think? This is the kind of resolve he had in his heart. That is the kind of resolve that radical faith is. That we would not shrink back from death to even give the appearance of evil, as Scripture says. Do not even give the appearance of evil. That's, 
That's radical faith, isn't it? Well, I think that's what God wants. I think he wants radical faith. It continues. It came to pass also that seven brethren with their mother were taken and compelled by the king against the law to taste swine's flesh and were tormented with scourges and whips. But one of them that spoke first said thus, What would thou ask or learn of us? We're not talking about denying Christ, because remember, Christ has not come yet. They are just holding firm to the words of God. It said, they said, we are ready to die rather than transgress the laws of our fathers. Then the king, being in a rage, commanded pans and cauldrons to be made hot, which forthwith being hated, heated, he commanded to cut out the tongue of him that spake first and to cut off the utmost parts of his body, the rest of his brethren, and his mother looking on. So his mom is forced to watch all of this. The brothers are watching their other siblings go through this. Now when he was thus maimed in all his members, he commanded him, being yet alive, to be brought to the fire, to be fried in the pan. And as the vapor of the pan was for a good space dispersed, they exhorted one another with the mother to die manfully, saying thus, the Lord God look upon us, and in truth hath comfort in us, as Moses in his song, which witnessed to their faces, declaring or declared, saying, and he shall have compassion on his servants. In other words, they're finding strength in the word of God. The promises of God. It's kind of interesting in the passage that they are quoting here in Deuteronomy 32, just before it says, vengeance is mine, declares the Lord. They knew that. But that's not the part they were focusing on. Get them, God. They were focusing on the promises that God had given them. The hope that they had. <clears throat> it goes on, so when the first was dead, after this number, they brought the second to make him a mocking stock. When they had pulled off the skin of his head with the hair, they asked him, Will thou eat before thou be punished throughout every member of thy body? But he answered in his own language and said, No. Wherefore he also received the next torment in order as the former did. So the second endures all these terrible evils as well. Why? Because he strengthened in his faith of God. Now again, you, you might say, this is crazy, this is nuts. And I know this is not uplifting, but just hang in there. When he sat at the last gasp, he said, Thou, like a furry, takest us out of this present life. But the king of the world shall raise us up, who have died for his laws unto everlasting life. What's their focus on? The resurrection. The next life. After him was the third made a mocking stock, and when he was required, he put out his tongue, and that right soon, holding forth his hands manfully. In other words, go ahead, cut it off. Here are my hands. Cut them off. I don't care. I mean, this is, this is like, uh, what's the movie? Braveheart times ten. And he said courageously, these I have had from heaven, and for his laws I despise them, and from him I hope to receive them again. 
I mean, that's Braveheart right there, isn't it? These hands, God gave them to me to serve Him. And I despise them because they haven't served Him properly. But I look forward to getting them back in heaven because there is going to be a resurrection. Take my hands. It's like, wow. I, I'll be honest, I've never watched Braveheart. I, I, I just know that little part. I don't like those kind of movies. I don't like seeing that kind of stuff. I don't even like reading about this kind of stuff. But I have to say, wow, to that kind of courage and resolve. And for what? Not to eat pork. Continues in so much that the king and they that were with him marveled at the young man's courage. I would too. For that he nothing regarded the pains. Now I like that. Don't don't skip over that. For he nothing regarded. I'm not saying he didn't feel pain. I wasn't there. I don't know. I suspect that he was feeling pain. But I, I also suspect he took it like a man to where it's not what I'm picturing in my head. Now, when this man was dead also, they tormented and mangled the fourth in like manner. So when he was ready to die, he said thus, It is good being put to death by men to look for hope from God to be raised up again by him. As for thee, thou shalt have no resurrection to life. I know where I'm going. You, you don't have the resurrection. He's preaching to him a little bit. But notice this confession of the hope of the resurrection that is continually being brought up. This could easily belong in Scripture. I'm not saying it is Scripture. I'm just saying it fits in Scripture perfectly, doesn't it? This is what Scripture says. We are to focus on the resurrection. 2 Corinthians 4.16 Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That outward man perishing, the old, every year I get older, the more I understand that, and the, the more I long for the Lord to come back. Because I don't want to reach 70. My goodness, 50 is bad enough. So, this outward man is perishing. I'm starting to understand that more and more. But verse 17, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. In other words, we're going to have a better resurrection. And those who suffer, it's going to be a greater resurrection as Hebrews talks about, Revelation talks about. I want to show you Tertullian, Roman historian here. He writes about Peter being crucified. Okay, again, this is extra biblical stuff, just historical evidence saying what happened, but this is what tradition says happened to Peter, the great apostle. We read the lives of the Caesars. At Rome, Nero was the first who stained with blood the rising faith. Then is Peter, girt by another when he is made fast to the cross. Then does Paul obtain a birth suited to Roman citizenship when in Rome he springs to life again ennobled by martyrdom. In other words, Peter was strapped to a cross. Tradition says he was upside down, hung upside down and crucified just like Jesus was on a cross. What is dirt? Uh, bound. 
So, very similar to Maccabees, you might say, in the sense that here you got one guy after another, and they're not learning a lesson. Okay, you can't scare these true believers. It didn't matter how many people you torture in front of them or kill in front of them. The next one was ready to go. I'm just reminded of Jamie Walden talking about, uh, you know, that you know a five-year-old kid being you know tortured by ISIS or whatever, saying, "No, I believe in Jesus." And then the eight-year-old, "Okay, yeah, I'll do whatever you want me to do." But when we have our hearts set on Christ and our eyes are fixed on him, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. See, guess what? These guys are in good company. Jesus did the same thing. For the joy set before him endured the cross. I know that sounds nuts. It sounds like I should be put in, in an insane asylum. But guys, we should have joy, the joy that is set before us. The hope of that resurrection should become so real for us that we shouldn't be thinking about the torture, the possible future problems. If that's where your mindset is on, you're fixed on the wrong thing. You may not go through it. You may go through it. I don't know. I have no idea what's going to happen. It doesn't make any difference because I'm not going to try and figure that out. I'm fixed on the end of my life regardless. I don't care how it happens, when it happens, just so that it happens. And I pray that it can happen soon because I want to be with Jesus. And if it's not my time yet, then I pray God gives me opportunity to share that hope with as many people as possible. Until that day. But our eyes need to be fixed because Jesus, that's exactly what he did for the joy set before him endured the cross. So the apostles, they're in good company here. But you can kind of see, I hope anyway, why I'm bringing up Maccabees here. Because I think it's quite fitting to exactly what happened to the apostles. You know, Eusebius gives some more specific information here in regards to the same thing. Thus publicly announcing himself, Paul here, as the first among God's chief enemies, Nero was led on to slaughter of the apostles. It is therefore recorded that Paul was beheaded in Rome itself, and that Peter likewise was crucified under Nero. So basically, just like Tertullian, we have a second source saying they were both killed. One beheaded, one crucified. Tertullian goes on, How happy is its church on which apostles poured forth all their doctrine along with their blood, where Peter endures a passion like his Lord's and where Paul wins his crown in a death like John's. John the Baptist. I know that this doesn't sound like all that great and an uplifting message, but I'm hoping that you see past that and that this is actually encouraging to you rather than scary or discouraging. That we should not love life as much as to shrink from death. And if it is more scary for you as we talk about this stuff, then maybe that's the Spirit pricking you saying, I need to be praying about this. I need to be praying that I fix my eyes on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Fix my eyes on Him. I don't think any of us men are saying we want to die like that. 
No, he's no, saying sign me up. Yeah, if that's what it takes to get to be with the Lord, then let it be. But none of us want that. I don't want that either. What I'm saying is, is that if we're always scared about this, then our the Spirit must be speaking to us to say, I need to think more in the Spirit than in the flesh. I need to be... I need to fall in love with Jesus more. I understand that me just saying that isn't going to change anybody's mind. I don't have the power to give somebody peace for that. But I know that Jesus does. It's kind of like I was saying before that in one of my presentations I talk about when I saw Jesus. And I said, I saw him. I got to talk to him even. And he talked back. And I go on and I say, I was at Walmart and there was a bum who was sitting out on the bench out there and he didn't smell so good and he didn't have any, uh, you know, warm clothes. He just, he was missing teeth, all of that. And I basically just said, hi, you know, and that was it and moved right on. And I remember my reading that day came from Matthew, which said, when did we see you hungry and we did you, didn't give you anything to eat or drink? And when were you in prison? And, and he says, when you didn't do it to the least of these, you didn't do, these, didn't do it to me. That person wasn't literally, physically Jesus, but that person was Jesus. And I remember praying, Lord, I want to see what you see in these people. I don't want to see just some bum on the bench that I just want to ignore. I want to see what you see. I want to have compassion for that man. I want to have a heart for him. I don't want to see some pierced up punk over here. I want to see what you see. I want to see somebody that I'd be willing to give my life for. And God over the years has continued to answer that prayer more and more and more to where I have compassion for people. And sometimes it bothers me because I, I get emotional about it. And I don't want to be emotional. I want to be this tough guy that doesn't get emotional. But I do. I get emotional. And sometimes, honestly, I have more compassion for that person than I do for the people in the church. They just tick me off because they know better. But I didn't have the strength. I, I maybe have shared this story before. I don't know. But it's my testimony. I had prayed to die since I was 12 years old. When I was 12 years old, I remember being in bed in Charlotte, Montana, praying, Lord, just let me die. I just want to die tonight. Now, I know many of people hear that and they go, oh man, this guy is clinically depressed. Oh my goodness, he is. No, it's not about that. It's that I know I would rather be there than here. And let me tell you too, it is extremely selfish. It was the most selfish prayer I could ever have, but that's what it was. I mean, I had been selfish from day one, but I was so selfish at 12 years old. I didn't care about my mom and dad missing me. I didn't care about what God had for me to do in life. All I wanted to do was be out of this world. I wanted to be with him. And every night I would pray that. So I am now a junior in college, and I go, my uncle was a professor at the college, and so we would spend a lot of time out at his house and I was sweeping his driveway for him one time and he was out there 
And I, I mentioned that to him, and I still can see it to this day. He grabbed his broom, and he stopped, and he leaned on it, and he looked at me. And I thought, what's he going to say? He says, I don't know how much time I want to invest in you. And I'm like, what? Ouch! Because I respected him, and that hurt. It's like, man, you just took a knife to my heart. He says, yeah, I, I don't know how much, if, if that's what you want, I, I don't know how much time I want to invest in you. And I remember, I mean, literally five minutes later, I think I was do, painting his house, doing something. I was doing something, and I was praying to myself, God, I don't know how to know any different. I don't know how. That's like asking me to not like chocolate or whatever. Somebody who loves chocolate saying, you're not going to like chocolate. Stop like, liking chocolate. I did not have the power in me to do that. But I can tell you this, I stopped praying to die after that. Do I still have a desire to be with the Lord? Absolutely. But I also am willing to stay because he's got a purpose for me. And as long as he has that purpose, I'm willing to do whatever, whenever, however he wants me to do it. I'm sure I'm going to complain here and there. That's just who I am. It's wrong, but I'm sure I'm going to do it. But nonetheless... God has given me an answer to that prayer in part in saying, giving me a desire for people, a desire for life and the purpose that he has for me. If he gives me an opportunity to go, don't get me wrong, I would, I'd hop on that bus like that. And my wife hates me talking about this because she thinks it reflects poorly on her or my family because, you know, don't you love me enough? Well, yes, I love you, but that's not what this is about. This is about being with the Lord. And so I don't know if that makes any sense or not, but what I'm saying is, is that I didn't have the power to change my way of thinking, nor will you have the power to change your way of thinking of not being fearful. But God can and does. I can tell you this right now. If somebody came and put a gun to my head and said, do you love Jesus? I would say yes, but would I have fear? I'm sure I'm going to have fear. I'm not saying that you can't have fear. What I'm saying is don't dwell there. Don't live there. Don't fix your eyes on the fear and the could-bes and maybes and would-bes, but rather the promises. That's where our mind has to be. And if you're always fixed on the fear part of what you're afraid of, then you might need to check your spirit because maybe you're not focused on the promises. You're focused on the flesh. To be, being ready and being fearful do go hand in hand. Like you said, Noah, that Paul says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die. But he also says this, I came to you with fear and trembling. When he goes to some of these people. It's not that Paul didn't have fear, but he was ready even through his fear. And he didn't live in a state of fear because he was always, oh, I wonder if I'm going to get tortured there. It was like, well, it could happen, but I'm not thinking about that. I'm thinking about the hope that I have, the promise. And so I'm not saying that it's sinful to have fear. Everybody in the human flesh can have that. Now, keep in mind also, guys, I'm not trying to, to say you're all going to be tortured. If you look throughout history, millions of Christians have died without being tortured. What I'm saying is, is that some are, have been, and will be 
Even today, I mean, it wasn't long ago we were watching Christians being beheaded on the beaches by ISIS. Okay? This is not new. It's, it's always been, and it's always a possibility in everybody's life and every generation. The point isn't the torture. The point is the focus of the resurrection and the hope that we have in Christ. That is what we meditate on, not the, the evils of this world, but the promises of God. One of the things I like about this too, this verse, uh, or what Tertullian is, is telling us in connection with these other scriptures, is that these are Jews that were dying, being tortured for the goal of getting the gospel to the Gentiles. That's impressive. Are we willing to do the same to get the gospel out to the Jew or the Gentiles? So anyway, just a thought there. Going back to Maccabees chapter 7, verse 24, Antiochus, thinking himself despised and suspecting it to be a reproachful speech, while the youngest was yet alive, did not only exhort him by words, but also assured him with oaths that he would make him both a rich and happy man if he would turn from the laws of his fathers, and that also he would take him for his friend, trust him with his affairs. So just the torture wasn't working. He says, not only do you not have to be tortured, but you'll be rich, and I'm going to take you as a friend. You, you can probably have a nice job working for me. I mean, he's offering him the world. But when the young man would in no case listen unto him, the king called his mother and exhorted her that she would counsel the young man to save his life. So, the boy says, the youngest boy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young. The youngest says, no way. Go ahead, torture me. And the king says, gee, many Christmas. Get his mother in here. See if his mother can talk some sense into him. So... <clears throat> It goes on, when he had exhorted her with many words, she promised him that she would counsel her son. So, yep, fine, king, I'll do it. I'll talk to him. But she, bowing herself toward him, laughing the cruel tyrant to scorn, spake in her country language on this manner. So, he couldn't understand what she was saying, but she says, O my son, have pity upon me that bear thee nine months in the womb. Gave thee such three years and nourished thee, and brought thee up unto this age, and endured the troubles of education. I beseech thee, my son, look upon the heaven and the earth, and all that is therein, and consider that God made them of things that were not, and so is mankind made likewise. Fear not this tormentor, but being worthy of thy brethren, take thy death, that I may receive thee again in mercy with thy brethren." While she was yet speaking these words, the young man said, Whom wait ye for? I will not obey the king's commandment, but I will obey the commandment of the law that was given unto our fathers by Moses. So, in other words, she too, what was the, 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 the focus? The resurrection. The resurrection is always coming back to the focus here. She knew, and this again, Romans says they joyfully, this is something that's been in my mind, and I've been telling people, they can take my guns, they can take my house, but they're not going to make me take the vaccine. That's a hill that I'm going to die on. 
Now, some of you, maybe, <laughs> your guns in your home. But here's what Hebrew says this. They joyfully accepted the confiscation of their property. Okay? They joyfully did that. Why? Because they knew that they themselves had better and lasting possessions. I'm not going to fight for my rights or my stuff. You do what you want. But I am going to fight to protect my temple. I am going to fight to obey God. And this is the part here that I just think, man, the resurrection is the key. She knew that there would be a better and lasting possession for her son. And the son knew that too. This is the kind of people Hebrews 11 is talking about. We're almost done here with Maccabees. Thou that thou hast been the author of all mischief against the Hebrews shalt not escape the hands of God, for we suffer because of our sins. I love that. Why is this? Not because we're going to blame God. God, why are you allowing this to happen to me? No, this is happening because of our sins. We deserve this. And though the living Lord be angry with us a little while for our chastening and correction, yet shall he be at one again with his servants. So, <clears throat> he's basically pulling from Micah here, um, as Micah says this, Do not rejoice over me, my enemy. When I fall, I will arise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I have sinned against him. Until he pleads my case and executes justice for me, he will bring me forth to the light. I will see his righteousness. I'll tell you what, you guys get the flu. You know why? It's because sin is in this world. That's the only reason you get the flu. But we know, well, you know what I mean. But what we do know is this, that God has, it says he will bring forth light. He will bear the indignation. He has done that because of Christ on the cross and the resurrection. And as a result, we, again, this is that hope that we have that, yes, it is sin because we are in a sin-filled world, a sin-filled flesh, but I have a spirit that is holy and righteous and is a saint of God because of what Jesus has done. And to always keep that in focus is going to be important, I think. For our brethren who now have suffered a short pain are dead under God's covenant of everlasting life. But thou, through the judgment of God, shalt receive just punishment for thy pride. But I, as my brethren, offer up my body and life for the laws of our fathers, beseeching God that he would speedily be merciful unto our nation and that thou by torments and plagues may confess that he alone is God. I've often wondered how Antiochus, like how much did he get to see before he died? Did the words of this person, if this is actually the words that were said, did this ever come back to haunt him? And think, man, I remember the torture of this. And now look, these guys, I mean, you want to talk about put the fear of God in somebody. What a testimony. That's incredible. And what he is prophesying, this young boy is prophesying, is basically what Revelation says, that every knee is going to bow before God. He says, I know where I'm going, but you, you're going to receive your just punishment. You will fall before our God. 
The king, being in a rage, handed him worse than all the rest and took it grievously that he was mocked. So this man died undefiled and put his whole trust in the Lord. Last of all, after the sons, the mother died. Let this be enough now to have spoken concerning the idolatrous feasts and the extreme tortures. So, like I said, the point of all of this is I think this is the kind of faith that we should strive for. This is the kind of faith Hebrews 11 is talking about. Um, But we can look at things going on, not trying to freak you out or anything, but again, this, this is way back in April. Why blame communists for the Wuhan virus when you can blame Christians? Okay? Christians were blamed in the spread of it because we didn't fear death. So we weren't taking it seriously enough. That kind of thing here. Coronavirus is Christians' fault. Uh, this was the Federalist kind of talking about it here as well. Um, just this last week, Homeland Security, the National Terrorism Advisory System, they put out these bulletins. You know, if there's ever like a terrorist alert, they put out a bulletin. Guess who was the terrorist alert this week? Conservatives. Okay. Due to heightened threat environment across the United States, the DHS believes will persist in the weeks following the successful presidential inauguration. And it goes on talking about this. But basically, if you're a conservative, you have now just been pegged on the Homeland Security's terrorist list. Yeah. If you believe in these so-called false narratives. So that's just this week. Now... I could give you article upon article upon article. I don't need to do that. You get the point. My point is, is nobody is immune to this. We are in good company. Hebrews 11.36, still others, picking back up here, still others had trials of mockings and scourgings, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned and they were sawn in two. Well, we know Stephen was stoned, right? Maybe he's referring to him. Maybe he's referring to others. Sawn in two. As I said, uh, Isaiah is that's traditionally... There's a, an extra biblical source called the Ascension of Isaiah. Uh, again, true or not, how all of this plays out, don't know. But it's, it's basically what history says. And Balkira accused Isaiah and the prophets who were with him, saying, Isaiah and those who are with him prophesy against Jerusalem and against the cities of Judah that they shall be laid waste. And Isaiah himself had said, I see more than Moses the prophet. But Moses said, No man can see God and live. And Isaiah has said, I have seen God, and behold, I live. In other words, um, this is basically... Uh, an interchange between Isaiah and a false prophet. And this false prophet is condemning Isaiah by using the Torah and saying that he's seen God. Nobody can see God and live. He said, well, Moses did, and I did, and that kind of thing. He goes on, he says, Therefore, O king, that he is lying, and Jerusalem also he hath called Sodom. In other words, Jeremiah was speaking against Jerusalem because of their sins. Just like if you speak against this country today because of the sins, you're the enemy. And the princes of Judah and Jerusalem he hath declared to be the people of Gomorrah. He brought many accusations against Isaiah, the prophets, before Manasseh. And the words of Belkira pleased him exceedingly, and he sent and seized Isaiah. So, the words of Belkira pleased the king. The king goes and arrests Isaiah. And 
on account of these visions that he had from God. Therefore, Belier was wroth with Isaiah, Belkira, and he dwelt in the heart of Manasseh, and he sawed him in sunder with a wooden saw. And when Isaiah was being sawn in sunder, Belkira stood up accusing him, and all the false prophets stood up laughing and rejoicing because of Isaiah. Now what's interesting there is just that's, a, I, I, that's a, just a picture of hell to me that these demons think they're winning, laughing and mocking. But how is Isaiah taking it all? Belkira spake thus to Isaiah, Say what I say unto thee, and I will turn their hearts. And I will compel Manasseh and the princes of Judah and the people in all Jerusalem to reverence thee. And Isaiah answered and said, So far as I have utterance, I say, Damned and accused be thou, and all they, thy powers and all thy house. And they seized and sawed in sunder Isaiah. So, in other words... Come on, repent. You're going to be fine. Nope. As much as I can see, you guys are damned. You are judged by God. They sawed in sunder Isaiah, the son of Amos, with a wooden saw, and Manasseh and Belkira and the false prophets and the princes and the people, and all stood looking on. And to the prophets who were with him, he said before he had been sawn in sunder, Go ye to the region of Tyre and Sidon, for me only has God mingled the cup. And when Isaiah was being sawn in sunder, he neither cried aloud nor wept, but his lips spoke with the Holy Spirit until he was sawn in two. Again, we can read this and we can read it in the flesh and go, oh, gross, terrible, awful. But I want you to see the peace of God that surpasses whole, all understanding here. He didn't speak. I could give you example upon example upon example at the time before the first temple fell. And I don't know if we covered this or not before, if it's just something in my other study, but bottom line, there was this guy that was warning of the fall and that they needed to repent. And they took and they beat him and they beat him and they beat him and they beat him. And he just kept saying in this monotone voice, basically, without any sign of pain. Stephen, as far as we see in Scripture, doesn't show any sign of pain. Going back to what you were saying, Debbie, that if our focus is out there, you're not going to feel the pain. Now, again, I'm not trying to give you the saying, hey, go ahead, you can go be burned in the fire and you'll never feel it. I don't know. All I know is that I see history being filled with God's grace being poured out in the moments when you need it most. And there are going to be times in my life as I like, God, where are you? I just, I don't see you. But I think and I truly believe that in my darkest moments, that grace will be poured out in the measure that it is needed whether it be torture or the loss of a child or stubbing my toe, whatever the case might be, God's grace is going to be there. It's that simple. So back to Hebrews to start kind of closing up here. Um, and guys, just even modern day, Elizabeth Elliot. I mean, she'll talk about these things. You can talk about, oh, the, the Holocaust, um, Corey Tinboom. You know, God's grace is amazing. Hebrews 11.36. We kind of read the psalm in two, just wanted to talk, I think, probably talking about Stephen and Isaiah there. They were tempted, they were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskin and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Guys, I want you to understand something. I don't, I don't think that was because they couldn't find a job. 
I think that was because they chose to live a life focused on heaven, not focused on how many toys I can get here on this earth. I think that's huge for Christians. I'll tell you something that haunts me. My wife, let me put, not put those two sentences together. <laughs> yeah, punctuation's important. My wife, sometimes we get in little arguments, and I'm going to throw you under the bus a little bit here, hon. Sorry. She complains that we're so poor. And I say, we are not poor. And it makes me mad when she says it. I'm rich. And I mean that in a material sense as well. I say, look what we have. We are far, far from poor. Do we have the money in hand that a lot of people do? No. But I'm telling you, we are rich in material things. And when I look at that and I see what Jesus said, that it is harder for a rich man to get to heaven than for a camel to go through the eye of a needle, that freaks me out sometimes. Because I see that we have so much that sometimes I can get off focus and we can be planning on what are we going to do? What do we want to do next week? What do we want to do three weeks from now? What do you want to do next year? People are planning vacations. They're planning all of these things all the time. We're living in this world as if this is home. And this is not home. And I think that the poorest of the people here in the United States of America are rich. They have more than the kings of old had. And when the Bible talks about rich people... I don't think he's just talking about those who have more than you do here in the United States. I think he's talking about me. I think he's talking about those of you just starting out. We have everything. And so when it says they wandered about in sheepskins, goatskins, destitute, it's because they chose what was better. Not to make this world home. That's probably why they were able to suffer as they did so gracefully. They were prepared. And we're preparing for too many worldly things. Of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. I honestly think that's the reality of true faith right there. Much different than the prosperity gospel of today. You're a Christian, you should have Learjets and, you know, all the money in the world. God wants you to be rich. He wants you to... I, that's not how they lived. When we're talking about these people of great faith, it says the opposite. And that it says the world was not worthy of them. Today, who do you want in your home? Who, oh, it's the rich people that have all of these things. You want them coming into your home? No, I, I want... I'll be honest, like some of the greatest churches I've seen are those that are filled with down and out people not the hoity-toity churches. There's a big difference, and it doesn't take long for you to see that. Verse 39, And all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise. God, having provided something better for us, that they should not be made perfect apart from us. Now, when I say did not receive the promise, that means right away there. Faith is the key. And 
God has provided something much better. Don't lose the faith in that. Don't make this your home. Don't make this your focus and what we keep working for day after day after day is so that you can have an addition to your house or a new car or a new house or a new gun or a new wardrobe or whatever. We need to fix our eyes on Jesus. That's how these people of Hebrews 11, that's what made them great, is their faith. And so that ends chapter 11. I'm going to just give you a couple of verses that tie into this from the Old Testament and we're done. Deuteronomy 16:3 you shall eat no unleavened bread with or no, no leavened bread with it this is the passover 7 days you shall eat uh, unleavened bread with it that is the bread of affliction for you came out of the land of Egypt in haste that you may remember the day in which you came out of the land of Egypt all the days of your life in passover which we are going to be coming upon here very soon again now it, that bread, it's called the bread of affliction. Why? So that they would remember God's deliverance. When we celebrate Passover, we are to be reminded of the deliverance that God brings. When we take communion and we remember the deliverance that He gave <clears throat> through His body, that's the bread of affliction. His body was beaten and striped for you. By his stripes, you have been healed. That's the bread of affliction. Luke twenty-two nineteen. he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, gave it to them saying, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Just like Passover. Eat this in remembrance of deliverance. Communion, eat this in remembrance of deliverance. In, in the Passover, out of Egypt. A picture of the world, a picture of sin. Last one, 1 Peter 4, 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same mind. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. That's an amazing verse right there. He who has suffered in his body is done with sin, NIV says. We've got to stop worrying about suffering. We have to stop dwelling on it. We have to stop letting it steal our joy. Because if we focus on Christ, yes, I can guarantee we are all going to suffer. I don't know what it is from being sick, cancer, loss of loved ones, to even worse. I don't know. But I can promise you this, all of us are going to suffer. Your, the question is, is what are you going to have your, your eyes fixed on? Are you preparing for it now? Because if you wait, you may not be ready. It's going to be a lot harder to go through it. I'm kind of reminded one last time in closing here of Jamie Walden's message. We kind of mentioned it last time, but the message that this is tonight, if you were a new believer coming in, I think this is the kind of message people should hear. Consider the cost. He talked about that where you, we in the church want people to come in feeling like we're going to remove all your suffering, take it all away, and you're going to be blessed, 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 and blessed by God. While there is some truth to that, that is not how we are to enter the church. The scriptures tell us, consider the cost before coming into the kingdom.
And I think that this is kind of a, a message that Hebrews 11, that's kind of what it is too. An encouragement to us, but also consider this. This is what it means to walk in the faith. This is what it means to obey God. We can try to avoid the persecution and suffering, and I'm talking mild persecutions here, just mocking and people making fun of you, you not fitting in, maybe losing a job. What was that? Or, yeah, whatever. All of those things, by blending in and just being this lukewarm, mediocre Christian, or you consider the cost and say, I want to be sold out for Christ, and I'm going to stand up and I'm going to obey. I don't care if I look weird. I don't care if they're going to talk about me. I'm going to stand up for Christ and I'm going to love people and I'm going to do what God's Word says. Because I'm fixed on Him and an audience of one. And I'm here to please Him, not you. And when we do that, and we consider that cost and we're willing, I think that our walk in life is going to go a lot smoother because those trials will be a lot easier to go through. So, let's uh, close in prayer and uh, just meditate on that this week. Heavenly Father, we just are grateful for, we're grateful for our suffering. As odd as that sounds, Lord, we know it's a good thing. We, We may not want it. I certainly know I don't desire it, but yet I know it's good for me. And so I thank you that through that suffering you have never once left me. And I pray, Father, that as we lean on one another and lift one another up, mourn with each other, that we would be able to encourage each other with these words, that we would be able to find strength in your promises and that we would fix our eyes on the future of the resurrection, eternity, live in the Spirit, not in the flesh. But, Father, these are all things that we just are so weak in the flesh. We need you to strengthen us. We need you to to be there to encourage, and we need one another to lift each other up. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. May we be there for each other through what lies ahead. And may we find the greatest joy and peace that this world has ever seen. That people would look at us and they would marvel how we can go through whatever the, the, the world has to throw at us, that they would marvel at our faith and our comfort. We pray this in the name of Yeshua. Amen.